0: So every year, I wonder who, as a lector or reader, is going to draw their short straw and have to do this reading with all the names of uh, places and all of that a little different from our normal. Carl, you did fantastic. Well done. Um, <laughs> we, and y'all did fantastic continuing to sing when the uh, organ dropped out. Uh, so, we, uh, so this is Pentecost. And uh, the Holy Spirit comes in tongues of fire. The disciples start speaking in different languages. And then they spill out into the streets or into the city of Jerusalem. And everyone recognizes these are uneducated Galileans. How are they speaking all of these different languages? Um, Of course, Jerusalem would have been pretty full at that point. It's the festival called Shavuot. And it's a pilgrimage festival. If you can celebrate it in Jerusalem by travel, then you would. Uh, So all of those people representing those uh, areas would have been there. Of course, uh, the cynical among the group see these guys speaking all these languages, and then they go, ah, they're just drunk. Then Peter gets up, and he delivers what is effectively the first what we might call Christian sermon. He stands up and he says, hey, it's nine in the morning. They're not drunk. To which we modern people might say, okay, so you've never been on a cruise before. (laughs) Uh, But whatever. And then he starts to explain, drawing from one of Israel's great prophets, a little explanation of what's happening. Now typically, we will relate what just happened with uh, the incident at the Tower of Babel on the plains of Shinar in the Old Testament. But I don't think that's actually the parallel. At least I don't think that's what Luke has in mind as he's writing this. Like they both have something to do with languages, but the parallel stops there. And in fact, I think what's happening here is much deeper. And it has actually a lot more to say about who you are as followers of Jesus than you might think. But you have to go back, like, a ways, all the way to the beginning of the Bible, to the two narratives of creation. Now, the narratives of creation have a lot to say about a lot of things, but there's one slice of it that gets missed, that when God rests on the seventh day, first off, it does not mean that he's tired or he needs a nap by the pool or something like that. But rather, in the worldview of both the ancient Israelites, you can actually see this all throughout the Hebrew Bible, but then if you take a broader step back and you look at other people groups that inhabit their world, the ancient Near East, you see this in Egyptian and Canaanite and Babylonian and Moabite and uh, Ugaritic and Hittite and all of these other places, that it was just assumed that everybody knew that when a god rests, either the god or any god, he rests in a temple, its sacred space. And so when God rests on the seventh day, and then that story gets repeated again in the book of Exodus, and then it gets referred to other times, what it's really saying is that God created the world to be some kind of cosmic temple, sacred space. And in order to kind of go with the metaphor, or actually, I, I apologize, it's not a metaphor, it's just more straightforward than that, um, that's why he puts his image bearers, his representatives, his statues, human beings, us, within creation. Human beings, as bearers of God's image, would reflect God's wise and gracious rule. There's a problem. He uh, selects a family, a man and a woman that he creates from the dust. Well, one from the dust and then one from him. And the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Delight, is filled with imagery that will get reflected in Israel's sacred spaces, the tabernacle and the temple. But all of that is just kind of details at this point. The problem becomes when the man and the woman no longer represent God, the Creator. The bit about, like, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's not just because, like, God doesn't like apples or something like that, and therefore don't touch them. Apples are fantastic. But think about very carefully what that, what, what that is saying. The, the, the knowledge of good and evil
1: is essentially wisdom. And the knowledge of evil is a good thing. As I raise my son, I want him to have the knowledge of good and evil, so that when he is presented with a choice, he chooses good. The problem is that the, the woman and then the man choose wisdom for themselves. And how much of human suffering boils down to the fact that we, as human beings, like to grab wisdom for, for ourselves apart from God? The answer is quite a lot. And so they are removed from sacred space. And then the rest of the Bible is asking this question, kind of underneath it all, how is God going to return to earth. Now he starts breaking in a couple of times, several times. And there are a few that are worth highlighting. The the first that I'm going to highlight is with Moses. Moses, the great prophet of Israel, the first prophet, who led God's people, the Israelites, out of slavery in Egypt and eventually toward the promised land, though he and his generation didn't make it. But before all of that, he's standing there in a field tending his flock, and there's a bush that's on fire. I don't know about you, but living in a dry climate here, as well as California, before this, if I see something on fire, I'm going to get a hose or I'm going to run. But Moses does not. He notices that the bush is not consumed. And so he goes over to this fiery thing, and the fiery thing speaks to Moses and says, Hey, take off your shoes. This is holy ground sacred space. Something to do with God's presence is breaking in, and it's fire. Fast forward. This was actually in our reading that I selected for today, that Moses is starting to interact with God shortly after his people uh, were rescued from slavery in Egypt on Mount Sinai, and God comes down, and it's filled with Fire, so that there's smoke all around. God's presence is denoted by fire. And God is warning Moses, saying, do not play around with my presence. It is not safe. And the people witness this, and then Moses has to do a bunch of things. And really the significance there is twofold. God's presence comes down, and it's fiery, and it's dangerous. And then this is also when God gives his people Torah, his teaching. He basically says, you are my people. This is how I expect that to look. Third example, when King Solomon, the son of the great King David, builds the temple in Jerusalem after God had been present in this tabernacle, kind of like a mobile uh, temple kind of thing, the most holy place is filled with smoke to the extent that the priests can't really go near it. God's presence re-invading his sacred space His earth. Only those were a bush top of Mount Sinai when God comes down, which functionally makes it a temple, and God comes and rests in the temple in Jerusalem. Now, bookmark all that. And fast forward to, again, Peter and the disciples making sense of what just happened the reason why, as I already said, that there would be a whole bunch of people from all over the place in Jerusalem was that this was the festival of, Sha- festival of Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks. And this festival uh, in the Jewish calendar is a festival where they remind themselves and reenact or re- and celebrate when God came down to Mount Sinai and gave his people Torah, his teaching. They're celebrating... That moment when God came down as fire to the top of Mount Sinai and changed everything. Does that sound familiar?
0: The Holy Spirit
1: coming down as tongues of fire on individual believers is not a coincidence. It is not a happenstance. It's not like, ah, God woke up today and he's going to come as fire to his people. No, no, no. That's just sort of how it works. Only this time God is reinvading his creation, which was supposed to be in its entirety sacred space, but this time he's coming down to his to, to his followers. And remember what I said near the beginning, wherever God rests, that denotes sacred space. It denotes a temple. The Apostle Paul, sometime later, will say to to the people that he's writing to, he says, don't you know that your bodies are the temple of the living God? He's not being cute. He's not drawing a metaphor. He's actually being remarkably straightforward for Paul. He's usually not that straightforward in a lot of things. He's just explaining how it is. And here's the weird thing. It's true for us, too. We believe that the Holy Spirit dwells within us that in our baptism God marks us as his own and we receive the holy spirit and you know what that makes us sacred space you as followers of jesus have been made sacred space just as the burning bush and the tabernacle and the top of mount sinai and the temple on mount zion in jerusalem all of those excuse me were sacred spaces you God has designated sacred space Now that might raise another question What's the deal with the languages? Well early on when God is making this promise we leave this covenant with abraham saying like you and your descendants will be my people I will be your God You will be a blessing to all nations and you start to get a lot of language about God drawing all people to himself Well, in the moment of Pentecost, it's finally starting. And it's God speaking through his designated sacred spaces to all the nations. And when you look back at the history of the Christian faith, that's precisely what has happened. As I said several weeks ago, we are the most diverse institution or group of people that the world will ever see. I say you are sacred space and that is absolutely true. That makes me a little nervous. I am sacred space. There's plenty about my life that is not sacred. In fact, it's the opposite, it's quite profane. See, this is why we as followers of Jesus say that it matters what we do. If God inhabits physicality like, I, I don't love the, spiritual, or the, love the word spiritual. I think it kind of misses the point. We as God's image bearers, like we are bodies. That's, that's who we are. That's what we are. Um, that's why it matters what we do with our bodies and with our minds as sacred space. Hopefully, at least some of us are a little uncomfortable with that. You start thinking, well, how did last week go? Well, eh, <laughs> I said that. I did that. I thought about that. You know, I drove in Albuquerque, which is just a sinful experience anyway. Um, Yeah. Yikes. (laughs) There's a problem. Now remember back to the reading from Exodus today. God says to uh, to Moses, like, do not let the people come up to the top. My presence is dangerous because it is. It's holy and, and it's perfection. You don't Play around with the presence of God. And over time, in the book of Exodus and really in the book of Leviticus, which I know is everybody's favorite book, um, God deals with that. It requires blood. And in some very hard to describe ways, it requires sacrifice for us to enter into the presence of God. I might add, for us to receive the presence of God permanently. Which is where Jesus comes in. Jesus, the once and final sacrifice, was not the blood of a lamb that made you clean, but it's actually the blood of his own son that has won your forgiveness, purified you, made you sacred, and made it possible for you to step into the very presence of God. Only this time, God's presence comes to us. The wild announcement of Pentecost is not just that a couple of Galileans started speaking other languages for whatever reason, but rather it is the final fulfillment of what God has promised he was going to do for a very long time, and he continues to do today. He has made you and me sacred space, bearing the presence of God, being his living temple, to spread his presence all throughout the world, the place that he originally created to be his sacred space. So may you bear God's presence wherever you go. Know that you are sacred space, purified and made clean, forgiven by the blood of the Lamb of God. And now you are charged with taking the presence of God everywhere you go. Amen.